We are reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat fruit from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day, and they hid from God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. These are the words of God. They're completely true, and they're given to us in love. All right. And it's so good to hear those benedictions and blessings over the babies um, and to see two baptisms. So um, hard to follow it, and so we're following it with one of the saddest passages in the Bible. <laughs> um, let me move this hype button so I don't hit that again. Um, I don't know how that got up here. So uh, we're going through the whole story of the Bible. And uh, last week, our first week, Todd shared about Genesis 1 uh, and 2. And if you had a newspaper during the first few years of the world, here are some headlines you might have seen coming from Todd's sermon and from Genesis 1 and 2. God, King of creation, makes all things good. God makes people for a relationship with himself and garden paradise. People to be his sub-kings, his images to care for the earth forever. Everything is as God intended. Very good. First man and woman love each other a lot. Now imagine with me, Adam and Eve, from that time, step into a time machine and set it for a couple weeks ago, March uh, or May 24th, 2022. And they get out and they find a different newspaper and they read these headlines. 19 children and two teachers killed in elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Joe Biden meets with world leaders to address Russia has started stealing. The fact that Russia has started stealing grain from the Ukrainians, creating a humanitarian crisis. North Korea fires three intercontinental missiles into the sea, testing them for use against other countries. 
University of California had to pay $374 million to settle an abuse scandal surrounding a UCLA physician who assaulted hundreds of women. The Southern Baptist Church responds to a 300-page report detailing an investigation and uncovering 20 years of abuse from their leadership. And a quote from the article, a reality far more, more evil and systemic than they imagined it could be. How do you think Adam and Eve would have responded to that shift? I want to suggest that there would be an audible gasp, an utter shock, a deep sadness, and a wondering what happened to God's world. What could have possibly done this? How did we get from the garden to here? They would be overwhelmed, and even those of us who are born into this world now are overwhelmed on a daily basis by the brokenness in it. You never really get used to it. Pretty much everyone agrees that there's something deeply wrong with the world. And sadly, it's not just the world out there and the news, but it's also there's something deeply wrong in here in our hearts. Because the news reel from our lives, my life, your life, in this room on May 24th might have run a little bit something like this. A person argues for hours with spouse over a tiny inconsequential issue. Parent lashes out at child. Man tells lie. Girl spends whole day thinking of herself and no one else without realizing it. Man breezed right by somebody in need and looked down on them, offering no help. Coworker talked behind the backs of others in the workplace. Man made a moral business decision. Christian went entire week totally ignoring God. There's not just something wrong with the world out there. But if we look at our lives, we know there's something wrong in here and it's painful to look at. Genesis 3 is the moment, the turning point of human history that connects Adam and Eve in that garden to your broken life and world now. What happened? And rightly understanding that moment, there's also the key. Can we get back what was lost? Is it possible to go back? So these are the three questions we're going to ask Genesis 3 today. What went wrong with the world? What's wrong now with me, and how do we fix it? What went wrong with the world, what's wrong with me, and how do we fix it? Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed on a daily basis by the evil in our world and in our lives. Guard us now as we look at its entry into our world, its schemes, its deception. Give us wisdom this morning how to better understand the true origin of evil that we might learn to destroy it. Protect our hearts in this endeavor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So question one, what went wrong with the world? Look with me if you have your Bibles uh, in, in verse 1, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. So Genesis 1 and 2 were about God, Adam, and Eve, and now a, a fourth character, a very important fourth character enters. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Crafty, the word crafty means clever at achieving one's aims by indirect or deceitful methods. Clever at achieving one's aims by indirect or deceitful methods. This means the serpent's words should be examined very carefully. They're deceitful. They're hiding some other evil purpose. I'm going to tell you right up front what that purpose is. It's a spoiler. The serpent wants to kill Adam and Eve. The serpent wants to kill Adam and Eve. Jesus says of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning, talking back to this story. He has murderous intent. Peter says that he prowls like a lion seeking someone to devour. 
And God tells Cain the next, in the next chapter, evil and sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. So the serpent here wants to kill Adam and Eve. And more than that, to rip them from God, drag, drag them into hell, and devour them for all eternity. He's a predator, an abuser, and his weapon for the kill is deception, his craftiness. So watch him carefully. Look at, look at the rest of verse 1. He said to the woman, Has God really said, a touch of skepticism, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The thing is that God had said, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of one tree you shall not eat. The serpent knows exactly what God said, but he changes it. And he puts it in the form of a question. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of any of these trees? It's a suggestive lie. A little cut across Eve's arm that makes God sound stingy and restrictive and over the top. And look at verse 2, how Eve responds. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. And then adds, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. Eve's recounting of this is actually notably different than what had happened earlier in Genesis. Eve, like the serpent, leaves out every tree. She says, you shall eat of the fruit of the trees. And then she also adds something that wasn't recorded earlier. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. It's possible this addition was something God had said that wasn't recorded uh, in Genesis, but it's probably more likely that Eve here is already being affected by the serpent's attitude. The cut on her arm is skeptical, suggestive lie, that now her memory is adding an even stricter rule to what God said and misattributing it to God. We, should, we can't even touch it. It's a little over the top, isn't it? Look at how the serpent responds, verse 4 through 5. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is not a scratch on the arm now. This is a bear trap laid on the ground, covered with leaves. He steps back and says, yeah, maybe walk over here a little bit. This fruit is not poison. It's elixir. God doesn't want you to have it because he wants it all for himself. If you eat it, you will become a god. Just walk right over here. He gives a characterization of God that's exactly the opposite of who we've seen him be in Genesis. An abundantly generous creator. He makes God out to be a deceitful God with ulterior motives. Who's that sound like? He makes God out to be exactly like what the serpent actually is. He uses Eve's creative nature to tempt her. She was made in the image of God in his likeness. And he says, you can be even more like God if you disobey him. He's keeping you from your purpose. Like hanging up a carcass in the bear trap for an animal to come eat. Then verse 6, So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So don't miss the subtlety. The author of Genesis is very subtle. Um, it says uh, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, God saw various things that he had made, and he saw that they were good. Now the writer speaks exactly the same way of Eve. She saw the tree was good for food. And he's connecting it. By doing so, she's usurping God, pursuing and asserting her wisdom over his. I want to be the one who decides what's good. And this fruit you said was bad for me, I say it's good. And then the quickest staccato of action verbs in Scripture, over thousands of years, 
of apocalyptic consequences for the human race. She took the fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It's eight words in the Hebrew. Boom, 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 boom. A few moments. Entire creation totally wrecked. It's the nature of sin. So fast. And the serpent, I'm sure, smiled as the bear trap snapped over her, and not just hers, but also Adam's legs. He didn't even tell them to do it. He just laid the framework and stepped back. And they walked right into it himself, themselves. Then verse 7, what happens as a, as a response to all this? Then the eyes of both were opened. Huh, the snake said their eyes would be open. That's good. But it doesn't say they become like God. They knew that they were naked. Oh, that's different. Uh, they became ashamed instead of becoming like God. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. For the first time, they start trying to cover themselves because of the shame. And the one thing that I think you're thinking at this point in the story is, they're not dead though, right? I thought they were supposed to die. It's a confusing moment because they ate and their eyes were open, but then some weird stuff happens. Um, you're expecting them to kind of drop dead here. And check this out. The serpent's deception is so subtle and clever that he used half-truths to accomplish his purpose. Things that sort of, uh, sort of came true, but in a really twisted, uh, kind of opposite of it way. So their eyes were open, but they were not like God. They're further from him than ever. They only saw that they were naked and were ashamed of themselves because of their brokenness and sin and had to hide. And they don't die immediately. Spiritually, they do die. They're, they can no longer live as they were meant to. They're kicked out of the garden, out of life with God, into a sinful and dark world. But there's a clock now ticking counting down the days until I do physically die, which was never meant to happen. And so Adam and Eve get caught in the snare and can never get out. And the half-truth-telling, deceitful, murderous serpent was successful in his purpose. So going back to our original question, what went wrong with the world? Genesis' answer in verses 1 through 7 is not Hitler or Vladimir Putin. It's not evolutionary instinct gone awry. It's not intolerance. It's not anxiety or depression. The fundamental issue underneath all those things, starting the domino that paved the way for those things, first is deception. Deception specifically by an utterly evil, murderous entity. In the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible, a terrible lie. It was a force of darkness smarter than our first mother working against her, against her whispering half-truths that sounded good but drew her to her own death. This is still what's wrong with the world today. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against ruler, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jesus says this, this power influences us greatly on earth. He says to people straight to their face, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The serpent Satan and his lies were what went wrong with the world originally. And Adam and Eve listened to him and gave in. And today, Satan and his lies and our participation in them, that, the Bible would say, is still what's wrong with the world today at its core. Someone who really got this was C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote one of the best books I've ever read called The Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters is a, a series of fictional letters by a higher-ranking demon named Screwtape 
to a lower-ranking demon who is tasked at tempting a Christian, pulling a Christian away from God. It's a really powerful book. I, I highly recommend it um, because it takes the concepts here in Genesis 3, Satan's deception, um, and, and it helps you start to see it happening and all the thoughts running through your head, all the resistance you meet in your life as you try to follow God. And so instead of trying to read this book out loud to you today, it's an older book. I think it's better to read it um, uh, not out loud, just in your own head. But I wrote a less good, shorter letter um, from, in the spirit of the book from Screwtape to the demon that's tempting me this past week uh, while I'm working on the sermon. It causes me to ask, what strategies might uh, Satan be trying to use against me? And as I read this, think about what could this be for you? What strategies is Satan using against you right now? So here's Screwtape talking to the lesser demon about how to tempt uh, me, Harrison. I see you have used well the classic tactic of the tyranny of the urgent on your human Harrison. What I mean is that no big sins need to ever keep Harrison from God when a crying baby, a dirty house, boxes needing to be unpacked, and a busy work life can do the trick. Always convince him there's something more important that must be done before being with God and make sure to keep that list long enough that he never finishes it. Give him a naive 21st century picture of God as the God of free time, of reading the Bible in a coffee shop, or of a slow walk in the woods. Never, of course, who God really is, the God of slaves, of psalm writers running for their lives in the desert wilderness, of a drowning man in the belly of a fish. Make sure Harrison never realizes that it's the terrifying urgency of survival in which God is most present with his people. And if your human Harrison could ever choose to turn to God during that survival, we, my dear demon, could never touch him. Affectionately yours, Screwtape. So for me in this period of a new house, a new baby, a new job, all this happened in the last few months, it's a busy season. And a tactic of the serpent is to say, God, right now it's just not as important as those other things. You'll get to them later. But when I'm busy enough, there is no later. I never get to them, and that's the deception. What about you? Where do you encounter the most resistance in your Christian life right now? What sort of lies, schemes, and half-truths might be fueling that resistance? I want to suggest one for Americans that is common, I think, is Satan doing everything he can to prevent our presence in a weekly church service. It doesn't need to be Hope Chapel, but a weekly gathering of the body of Christ to worship God and to hear from him in his word and to take his body and blood into you. Satan loves to convince us there's something more important than that on your weekend schedule. So watch out for suspicious resistance like that. Not just to church, but to your prayer life, to your experiencing joy in Christ, to your thankfulness, to your patience, to your daily godly rhythms, to you loving your neighbor, to your marriage flourishing. flourishing. This resistance is fueled by lies and it's happening to you all the time right now as you sit here. So what is wrong with the world? Genesis 3 would say a terrible lie. Satan and his deception. Now, some of you might be thinking at this point, I've known about this whole deception thing for a long time. And the issue is, sometimes I know it's a lie. I know I'm being deceived. And I still give in because I just generally want to. I know there's something wrong with Satan, but is there something also just wrong with me? 
So that leads us to our second question. What is wrong with me? Look at verse 8. As I heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day, and the man and woman and his so the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now the serpent's not mentioned, he's gone now, but the deception, interestingly, is still happening. Adam and Eve now are deceiving God or trying to by hiding. They're ashamed, they're afraid. And verses nine and ten. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. What you have here now is a half-truth, not coming from the snake, but coming from Adam. He's being honest about the very present moment, but leaving out one pretty big piece of the puzzle, which is we ate that fruit, by the way, and it totally changed us, everything about us. It's a half-truth. And then verses 11 through 13, you said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I command you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So rather than taking responsibility, Adam and Eve give more crafty half-truths. I don't want to be blamed for this. It's the woman. She's the one who gave it to me. And, and by the way, God, it's the woman that you gave to me is the one that did it. So really, if you think about it, both of you guys, from a, from a certain point of view, are, are really kind of at fault here. And Eve is like, oh, don't look at me. I'm just a snake. The snake is the one who did it, right? He gave it to me. He convinced me. And so just like the serpent, Adam and Eve are trying to justify their conduct based on the circumstances that God gave them. Trying to justify their conduct based on the circumstances that God gave them. And to avoid blame, Adam even turns against his closest companion, the same woman he was just singing about in chapter 2. At last, she's here. Now he's throwing her under the bus. But as readers, we see through this blame shifting. They made choices themselves to eat, and now clearly they look and act differently as a result. Something's wrong with them. It's as if the lie wasn't a snare, but it was a snake bite. And the venom has gotten in their vein, and it begins changing them. They become more and more like the serpent. They're operating like him. They're distrusting God. They're hiding. They're lying. They're blaming. They're spawning evil action left and right. So what is wrong with them and what is wrong with us? Genesis 3 would say it's snake-like living. In theological terms, this is called sin. They are now snake people, sinners. And they eventually had kids and the venom passed down through nature and nurture. Not only did the kids inherit the snake DNA, but they also grew up with snake parents. And then they had kids and so on and on and on and on and on until you and I stand here now with the venom, same venom in our veins. So do you really want to know what's wrong with you? Do you want to know why every day you do what it is you don't want to do? Why one day you could draw a perfect picture of what your life should look like tomorrow and the next day totally wreck it? Do you want to know why most of your New Year's resolutions turn to garbage? Why the words fly out of your mouth that you can't take back? Why even if you fix one of those big issues, that another one will pop right up just to take its place? The answer in Genesis 3 is not just Satan lies, but it's by yourself, without Satan's presence. You are a half snake, half person. Just like that lizard guy in The Amazing Spider-Man. 
by yourself, Jesus says your father is the serpent, the father of lies, and you act like him all the time. To grasp this truth is to take a step out of deception towards truth itself. To stop making excuses and to stop shifting blame and to turn the culpability rightfully back to ourselves. It's called confession. To see the log in our eye and acknowledge it. I did a bad thing. Not only that, I do bad things. I put logs in my eye. I don't want to do it, but I do. I can't stop it. Help me. I'm a snake man. Do you know it's not just okay to admit that, but it's true and good to do so. The snake in you would never admit that, but the human in you longs to admit it. So what's wrong with me? We become like the snake, snake-like living. What's wrong with the world? A terrible lie, deception. And it leads us, both of those things, to the obvious question, how do we fix it? Can we get back what was lost? Look at verse 8 again. Familiar character steps back into the story. The Lord God, Yahweh, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, heartbroken, saying, where are you? He knows where they are, but he's pursuing them. He's meeting them in their shame. He's calling them out of deception back into the truth. And then again, Adam tells a half-truth, and God calls him out into the light a second time. How did you know you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat? Again, God knows the answer, but he's giving Adam another chance to come out of hiding, to come clean, to finally tell the whole truth. But God doesn't get the truth, only blame shifting. Adam and Eve have become deceivers like the serpent. But check this out. As God lays out the consequences for human history for these actions after our passage, he makes a promise to the serpent, that murderous evil entity, but he gives hope to the snake people. He says, I will put enmity, I will put opposition between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now the entire Bible sits under the shadow of this promise. Follows the thread of the offspring of Eve through genealogies, waiting for one descendant. Who is this he who will finally crush the lying serpent's head, who will defeat the terrible lie? Though this, this descendant will be struck on the heel, and the wait is over, when we finally see Jesus, that offspring who defeated the lying serpent, not just by telling the truth, but by being the truth, the fullest revelation of God, God in the flesh among us, who we finally see clear as day, not as a stingy, restrictive God that the serpent would make us believe, but as one who, because of his love, gives us everything, not just fruit, but his own body ripped to shreds, his own blood poured on the ground. Because he wants to save, he wants to save those he loves from being killed by that serpent. Paul says, if God didn't spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things. In light of Jesus the truth, how ridiculous is the serpent's lie in Genesis 3? So how do we fix it? Genesis 3 says you don't. Snake person, you need the snake crusher. You need the truth himself to destroy the lies you've held on to. And this process hurts. It's like chemotherapy because cancer now is a part of you, but it must die. 
And only with him through death will you find your freedom from these lies. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.